Today's guest is someone doing it all. Carrie Goring is a love, sex, and relationship coach, life activist, and one half of, po of a podcast, Medicine for the Resistance. Carrie Goring is moving into the uplifting role as a healer and leadership facilitator. She entrenched herself in the fascinating world of business for over 20 years, with eight of those years in the fast-paced scene of finance and investments. After learning the ropes, she took those skills into the private sector to lend her hand at consulting, successfully consummating multi-million dollar deals in the areas of sports and fitness and the eco sector. She found a unique connection in hair and beauty industry, operating her own salon. Carrie is now set on living her best life by using her lived experience, knowledge, and passion to create healing spaces as a burgeoning love, sex, and relationship coach. Unfortunately, Carrie's family has had more than its share of adverse life challenges, with part of them being two, now, two children, now adults, who have suffered traumatic brain injuries. Today, we will hear their stories, how she is coping and navigating the system to get the help she needs. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you for having me, Andrea. I am so excited to be here. So you are a really brilliant woman who's doing so many amazing things. You know, I'm never surprised, but I'm always surprised at the same time when I see people that are succeeding on so many levels, but yet are so compassionate and empathetic. And I find out what they're really going through in everyday life. You have a lot on your plate. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm truly a believer that you know, the universe will only give you what you can handle. And on the days you can't handle it, you just kind of got to chalk it up and begin again. Yeah. And so now you have two of your children have traumatic brain injuries. Do you want to quickly maybe just tell me how each of them came to have a traumatic brain injury? Uh, it's uh, an interesting story. We have uh, myself and my partner, we have seven children between. Uh, the two of us, we are a big blended family. I have four that are my biological, and he had three that was his biological. And um, over the course of our relationship, we've been together for 16 years, um, we ended up intermingling our children uh, to some mixed success. We found out that uh, through the process of um, are growing together, that our children had been through some serious traumatic events um, that were shaping their very realities. And there were consequences coming out of those spaces. And so what we actually ended up having was um, a circumstance where my daughter, who is my, she's my middle child, and I always say she's she's very much the, the, the in every bunch of children, there's always one that is brought into your reality, uh, I believe, to teach you the greatest amount about yourself. And um, my daughter, Ashton, is definitively that one. <laughs> and um, Ashton, at the age of 22, uh, through a culmination of her own life experiences, uh, ended up uh, getting into a severe car accident where she hit a 16-wheeler truck it's um, at 165 kilometers an hour. Um, it completely shattered the entire left side of her face and resulted in a traumatic brain injury. My goodness. Um, and yeah. how, how old was she then, Carrie? Uh, at the time, she was 22 when this, this particular incident happened. 
when the accident happened. She was 22. And she, how many how many years ago? That would now be four years. So she is 26 at this point. But what I recognize is it was more or less a culmination of, um, as I said, she was my colorful child. So Ashton was always um, a, a, a very interesting teenager. Um, it was never boring with her around. <laughs> she, she, um, she experimented um, quite a bit with, with living on the wild side, um, I'll put it that way. And um, we, we, we recognize now after we had um, had a chance to go through some professional help that the chances were that she probably had, was bipolar or had a, a, a personality disorder that was not diagnosed. Um, and what we actually believed happened was she might have been in a manic state when we went on to the car accident phase, the chances where she was. She ended up, it was a police chase um, in, in the inception uh, that resulted in the car accident. So there was, uh, there were some circumstances of unfortunate events that led up. Wow, that is intense. And now your, your son from your partner yes. also has a brain injury. Yes, he does. My stepson, um, about a year and a half ago now, um, unfortunately uh, had a triggering event and my stepson chose to try and um, commit suicide. Um, and he uh, jumped off of uh, Overpass Bridge onto a highway. But one of the things that I am, I say, and you know, maybe it's a little, a little uh, dark, but I always say we have bionic children. Um, he survived. Um, and he himself, through the course of that accident, unfortunately ended up with a frontal lobe brain injury as well. So both of them have that. So blended families on a good day are really difficult. And I think when we are recovering from what we realize is, you know, generational trauma and we blend families and, and I, what you're describing is so common because I, I hear from kind of the everyday person like why does it come out now and I think once once human beings have gone through things and then they get into safer places that's when you start to see all the the, the can of worms opens up so to speak I absolutely agree with you um, my, my daughters and, um, Omari, my partner's, uh, children as well, had both come out of a really traumatic situations. Uh, my children, I have found out that had been, uh, subsequently subjected to sexual abuse. Um, and that was from a pre a previous marriage that I had been in at the time we hadn't come to any awareness of it. Um, in, in the time that we had started blending. And the same had happened um, allegedly um, my, for my uh, partner's children as well. There are rumors of that being an impetus as well as they just, you know, um, their mother was suffering from some addiction issues at the time. And we ended up kind of just getting them in a very happenstance kind of uh, circumstances. So. Both sets of children came into our, our familial setting with their own sets of issues. And at the time when we were even just beginning to blend the family, we had absolutely no idea the depths of which 
the penguins. And I want to say a humongous thank you and, and just sending you an immense amount of gratitude uh, for myself and for my listeners. Sexual abuse is something that we do not talk about enough. We, it is happening in more homes than people want to admit. And we have to get away from the blame game. And we have to start bringing it to light so that everyday people can be educated. Um, I think one of the things that I have recognized is a lot of times parents, you know, well-meaning, smart, loving, kind, or broken, whatever the case may be, parents don't recognize the signs because we've never been taught to recognize them. And you speak, uh, well, you speak to something that I think is so real. And one of the reasons why I share my story in such a candid way is because we, we, we live with this veil. And we, you know, everybody, on the most part, for the most part, we, it's still a very much a space that is uncomfortable. And yet- Very much fabric, so. Very much so. The fabric of it really is insidious in the way that it affects the dynamics that exist. And I believe that what is in the dark has to be shed some light to. Absolutely. I've actually read a statistic mm-hmm. because, you know, it's interesting. I see lots of people talking about sexual abuse. You know, we see, I, ha- I have an advocate in my life who was abused by, uh, within the Catholic Church. I have another good friend in my life who was um, abused by an adult family member. These are stories that we do hear when we're talking about um, sexual abuse, but sibling sexual abuse is actually the most common form of sexual abuse. And it's the least talked about and the least addressed. Well, it's, it, and I so agree with you. For me, it's been um, what has really fueled some of my passionate work is to be able to start to recreate spaces to create spaces for safety so that we can deal with these kinds of so overlying complicated intricate issues because you know it is one thing when we you know hear it coming from you know the stereotypical spaces like the church um and all of those other places but it is it is one of the last final taboos when we talk about this kind of abuse that is happening between siblings or within and amongst family members. And I, I really um, hold to it uh, that, that we have to start talking about it because the, when, we, when we live in this denial, when we don't acknowledge it, the reverberations show up in you know, daughters hitting, hitting uh, Mack trucks at 165 kilometers an hour. Well, and I also think, uh, based on my experience and what I've observed, that, you know, most parents, no matter what is going on in someone's home, it, I don't think that it's innate that we look at our children and think one of our children would hurt our other child that way. Um, I think that most parents, if you were to bring that topic up, they would say, oh, that would, my, so, my child would never do that. And I think the reality is, is that we don't, it, sexual abuse is a very cyclical thing, right? Mm-hmm. It, uh, we, tip, we do know statistically that if a child abuses another child, it's because they have been abused. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, um, you know, when we're looking at it and we are, you know, we're seeing our children through this light, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're actually not doing 
them a service either because we have to recognize that there's actually always a vulnerability, especially in the world that we're living in now where kids have access to social media, concepts, ideas, and sexual um, uh, sexual ideas, especially that are be uh, beyond their capacity to understand. That there's so many ways that children's minds are, you know, for lack of a better term, are are being corrupted, um, and they're getting information that they don't know how to handle. Um, you know, so I think that we do need to start candidly, uh, proactively having these conversations and teach parents how to build awareness into their family structure and to not take risks uh, where we're leaving older children who maybe have symptoms of crisis in care of younger children, for example. I think you've really hit on a, a huge piece of this. It's a very, you know, we in our busy worlds that we live in as parents, you know, it, it really is a space, and I, I think you're, you're quite on the money, where we just never really would believe that these things can exist. And while you never want to approach our reality with, you know, with jaded glasses, I think it's much more realistic to be prudent in how we, we choose to, to act and, and create with our children. The, the dialogues must stay open. We have to be in that recognition that yes, our children are absolutely being exposed to such fast flickering information, good, bad, ugly, or somewhere in between. And exactly the truth, circumstances sometimes are outside of our control. And we do have to be able to be as diligent and as open as we can to try and protect our kids. Um, and sometimes even from each other. And it's just in the understanding of keeping those lines of communication um, open as much as possible. And um, maybe trying to be proactive uh, is, is such an easier space than having to be in, in a reactive mode. And, and what do you do if the circumstances do happen to you? It's well, that's the piece also. Ah, that's an, another circumstance. Um, that and I think that's the piece of dealing with all trauma because one of the reasons that I do this podcast is to not just tell people's stories, but I, I continue with my work in my own family, but with the work with the people that I work with, vulnerable people, uh, to search for tangible answers because there's a lot of verbal diarrhea about how to deal with trauma. <laughs> Um, but for the average everyday person, it's not clear how to deal with trauma or extreme grief. There, and, and, you know, kind of circling back to now your children, two of your children have these serious brain injuries that you, you know, have been able to kind of identify are in some way an outcome from unresolved um, you know, adverse childhood experiences um, navigating the system to get proper help is something that I think you're becoming an expert at. <laughs> wow, yes. Um, that is a, such an interesting space. And one of the things that I, I always recommend after you get through you know, the initial grieving of this is to put your hat on. 
you have to become an absolute advocate for your children, um, for whoever it is that you are working with, because our, the way that our system is set up, unfortunately, we have an amazing, that, you know, we have some, some true things here in being in Canada that I um, just, you know, let me celebrate. But at the same time, figuring out how to access and, and really um, be able to move through it in a way that will be advantageous is difficult. And um, it is absolutely imperative that when you are dealing with a TBI, and especially if it happens in an emergency situation, that you are not, do not allow anybody to kind of uh, tell you that it's not a severe thing. The TBI, having a, a traumatic brain injury is really like a, a, an injury that sits in the dark. It takes about, say, two years for the actual um, synapses of your brain to really be functioned. If you imagine, for instance, if you had a computer and you, you know, poured water into the hard drive and your computer did a big old short and you know it shut down for a minute and so you are just hoping and praying after you've given it a little bit of time to dry out that it's going to reboot and figure out what's wrong with it it's very much the same idea with a brain injury mm -hmm. so even as your person is going through recovery it takes about you know two years for your brain to actually reassess and for those synapses that may have shut down to figure out new ways to reformulate themselves and to re reattach in different ways depending on the nature of the injury. So um, it's, it's a slow creep with a brain injury. You never quite know what you're going to get. Um, and, and it's a, one of those things that sometimes your person will present quite normally and you don't really recognize what it is. So it's a very misunderstood um, injury. And, yeah, and so I wanted to ask you because, you know, it, it, so there's a few things on my mind in relationship to how brain injuries present or don't present um, or things that people may not pick up on. So for example, um, I've learned a lot about traumatic brain injuries over the year in relationship to emotional self-regulation. Um, uh, there's a family I know whose 12 year old son committed suicide and had had quote unquote mental health issues for many years, but it was post a very severe skateboarding accident. So in fact, what it was, was a traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, I have another example of uh, uh, family friends of mine who had a son who was in a uh, ATV accident. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, for the four, four years following the accident, he was um, completely erratic, uh, engaging in dangerous behavior, um, addicted to drugs. And also all of these things almost like a traumatic brain injury can instantly change your personality, or it may not be as obvious. It could show up in having a hard time retaining information or um, sleep disturbances. Um, just uh, it could be extreme depression. There's a variety of different ways that uh, it may it will manifest depending on the person and the injury. Absolutely, and very much so. It also depends on the region of the brain to which has been affected. Exactly. So, right? Your frontal cortex is that emotional, it is your emotional center. 
it is what does allow for the self-regulation of your emotional, um, for emotional regulation, for your ability to um, process and, um, you know, measure within reason uh, your, your ability to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Your ability to uh, measure danger even. Uh, for the longest time, take for instance, when we were in the very early stages with my daughter Ashton, I have a, a two-year-old granddaughter and I had my daughter Ashton and we would be, say, walking across the street and I actually would grab Ashton's hand at 23 at the time before I would grab um, my granddaughter's hand because Ashton had no understanding or recognition that of, of stepping off of like a curb. She, you know, there was no immediate sense in her brain. She couldn't register that there might be danger. And so she would just step off on a curb. And if there was traffic there, she'd walk out in the middle of it. And it was just the way at that particular point that her brain processed the idea of danger. There was none. Wow. So uh, it's really um, clear to me that you are a proactive parent. Um, and I think that even, you know, just in general, you're a proactive person when it comes to dealing with the, you know, all of the issues that uh, families are facing, whether it, it what I, where I'm going with this is that I find one thing that has been even clear to me in my own life is that I had a traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. I actually had two. I had one when I was three. I fell down an eight-foot hay hole. Um, I still have a massive scar on the front of my forehead. Yes. I, I, I was unconscious for an extended period of time. Uh, and, you know, I've had multiple concussions in there. Um, and uh, at 19, I was in a serious boat accident where they did diagnose me with a quote-unquote head injury. Um, but no treatment was ever provided. And, and that is so common, especially for like, I'm 47, right? So I think there's this gap of people who, and, and this can continue to happen, although I think we're getting better, right? If, if young people get concussions, we're responding very differently than we did even 10 years ago. But, you know, what do you think now, like if somebody has a, for example, if somebody has a historical brain injury, or if somebody has a current brain injury, uh, or even recently in the last few years, what's 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 the protocols now? Well, it's it's um, definitely where we're what we're working with now is there is such a new awareness. Um, when we were younger, there really was no understanding of the the brain, and there still isn't. It's still a topic that is um, very much you know research is ongoing. We are beginning to recognize how the brain is starting to function or does function. So the awareness is definitely more. Definitely one of the first protocols I would suggest is that when you hear or you get an inkling, like if you hear anything about there's been a bleed on your brain, um, take for instance, uh, there was just in, in when Ashton was um, brought into the hospital, it was just a, a tiny little note was this idea of a bleed on her brain. Um, it was noted, but we, they just said to us at the time, uh, it would just be absorbed back in. You know, It wasn't that big a deal. There wasn't any real swelling, even though the space where she had hit at the back of her head was, uh, she had a bald spot from the, the impact. 
it literally, um, and it, it was the same actual indication when my stepson as well hit the back of his head. There, the, it was so shocked, there were, it left a scarring where they were actually bald in that particular area of impact for, for several months. Um, but what, what it is, is to be able to know some of the, the verbiage that comes along with it. So when you hear something like um, a brain bleed, and I also recognize as well that in those kinds of emergency situations, the, the, team, um, the team of doctors is really simply trying to keep you alive, right? So it's, it's just about the trauma care in those moments. But if you hear signals like that, if you hear concussion, if you hear unconscious for a period of time, um, keep note of that because there's a very strong indication that these are things that will come up later on. And what was my greatest... Um, what could a parent or a, a support person or an advocate do? Could they uh, recommend, let if the patient's an adult or if they're a child, obviously they could ask themselves, get a copy and make sure that they keep those files? Documentation, uh, documentation, documentation. It is imperative to make sure that you get um, written copies of all the medical records that are going on. Um, you, it's imperative to see if you can tap into aftercare. Um, because the brain injury is something that isn't going to show up in those immediate responses, right? And what is aftercare? What, what is aftercare for a traumatic brain injury? Aftercare for a traumatic brain injury may look like you, a person may need to relearn things. Um, they may need um, specific working with direct counselors um, or the Brain Injury Society with uh, psychologists and psychiatrists that really understand the functionality of how the synapses rework. It may look like having a rehabilitation specialist who can actually um, build back uh, life functionings. So you, as I was saying, I mentioned, you may have to relearn things. So in that relearning, it might be as simple as uh, learning how to grocery shop again, because if you go into the grocery store, walk around and learn to pick things, that's the way that the synapses of your brain gets to reformulate a repetitive action. It may be that your person, um, and this is much more of an extreme case, but has like a slight list that they may not have had before and, you know, doing riddles uh, or um, uh, will help a person, you know, that repetition of thought. It, it um, will help them re-verbalize themselves in different ways and also work a different functionality of the brain and allow synapses to reform. It may look like having a physiotherapist that takes them through an exercise program that once again, using your physical um, attributes allows a different working part of your brain to reformulate as well. So it can take many different formulations depending on what the the nature of the injury is, what symptoms are coming forward, and, and um, just the process of how you need to be rehabilitated in. But it's accessing those support systems and people that really get it. And here's something that you just brought up that made me want to highlight a, a really important point. A lot of times when we're dealing with people that have poor self-regulation, 
uh, they are dealing with an underlying trauma. So, and it could be a physical trauma or it could be an emotional trauma or it could be both. Often these things go undiagnosed and we have adults running around with brain injuries all over the place that have never received the treatment they need. And often the go-to is when we see people who are dealing with emotional dysregulation uh, is counseling. But where there's a brain injury present, counseling is not gonna do anything. It's really going to change nothing. Uh, what it is going to do is in some cases, especially if it's an emotional trauma, it could actually reinforce the trauma. Um, but you hit the nail on the or the, <laughs> the nail on the head uh, when you were talking about how the physical body is what is really required. Movement of the physical body, and and I think about it. I liken it. I liken it to when a baby is learning to crawl. Um, we know that that right left bilateral movement is what is helping the brain development. It's a crucial developmental stage of the brain for an infant. And the brain is developing through crawling, cross pattern, cross crawls. So I learned about that through Brain Gym many, many years ago that that one of the best ways to strengthen the brain is through physical movement. And we're even seeing that when, when we're talking about the research with dementia and um, Alzheimer's that dance and movement and anything that involves patterns can help the brain heal. Absolutely. And as we are becoming much more trauma-informed, this is one of the, the, the uh, areas that um, I really work with, is understanding that our limbic brain system, which is that primal part of our brain, registers every single experience that we go through. And it's like this amazing library. It just keeps the files. But because your subconscious, which is what your limbic system is, your subconscious brain just records it. And it puts your system into almost that, that state of, of emotional dysregulation um, or survival mode. And it just stays there. So one of the biggest keys and ways of actually being able to heal in our traumatic experiences is to associate or try and reattach this, the, the subconscious stuff that's just happening, those memories that you may have, and you're not even aware that you're there, to your conscious part of your brain, which understands that you may be acting out in turn. And one of the best things that you can do to make your conscious and subconscious connect is in movement, bringing it back into the functionality of your body and your body spaces. Um, and, and, and through movement, sounding, one of the most interesting, fascinating studies that I had just recently read is a study that was done out in the wilderness. They were following a pack of, I think it was wolves, and they, um, when a wolf got injured, one of the things that actually happens is that a wolf will cocoon themselves and they will actually shake. And animals in general will go through like a shaking motion of, of dealing with their trauma. And those that do not do, they would maybe do this for a period of time and then suddenly be able to shake it off. And then they'll be able to heal whatever the physical wound was. And they found that when they were looking at this in the wild, those animals that never went through that, that actual physical shaking period did not survive in the same way that those animals that did resource in that way get through it. Wow. So there's something to say 
that there, where the healing really begins is in being able to connect your body with your mind and your consciousness and understanding of who and what you are to that ability to heal. And I found that with, um, with dealing with my, with my two children with brain injury, it is definitively been repetition. Um, you know, there's, there, that the emotional regulation is definitely a challenge, but it's been in um, the repeatedness of, of coming at it. The repeatedness of this is going, if you do A, this is going to be result B. And if you do A, this is going to be result B. And if you do A, this is going to be result B. And it's, it's that constant knowing of the consistency of it while allowing them to sit in the spaces of their, of their reality of it in their bodies that we have been able to really start to formulate change. And it's not easy. It has been a very slow movement. Um, the impacts are huge, but I am seeing movement. Nice. And that to me is the key. Um, and so you're now leading me to what I would like to close with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting to know you and your story has been so empowering for me. Um, I've always been, I've been a pretty open book and, and in that my own family has dealt, I've got a long history of systemic trauma and stuff that has impacted my children and, and understanding that when we're, cause we're not just dealing with just these brain injuries, we're dealing with, for you, you are dealing with, uh, these underlying tra- adverse childhood experiences that your children have gone through. And. I, I, I understand very well that, you know, I see that you're a leader who wants to heal and, and lead your family through healing. And in that, in our humanity as mothers, there, there is a lot of, uh, individual personal challenges when you're coming face to face with the darker side of life, um, and dealing with, yes, the shame and guilt of, of not being able to protect our children, uh, the shame and guilt that society and stigma places upon us that we have to navigate to, that we must navigate because you cannot succumb to it because then it's over. Absolutely. Um, so I, uh, tell me about your self-care. Tell me how you take care of you Tell me how you take care of you when it's all unraveling and you and you can't keep it together for your kids who probably are your adult children who are learning how to re-self-regulate and life is chaotic and you're trying to run a business and sure. take care of grandchildren and sometimes eat, I think. Yes. I I the key to it through the entire crazy roller coaster journey that it has been uh, especially in the the last little bit i am so learning about the imperativeness the absolute bottom line has to be about my self-care it i'm recognizing that uh there's two things in that one being that i've got to slow it down and take these moments to be who i choose to be who am I in this journey of all that this has been? And really make the points to figure that out. 
Right. So that's been um, one thing. And the other thing has also been that I am really becoming, really coming into acceptance that I am not my children, that we all come into this reality uh, for our journey. And my space is to hold the place. It's to hold the space as my children come through this reality. They came through me. They are not me. And I, to, to be able for all of us to have healing, for all of us to be able to love, is to be in acceptance of where we sit in our individual journeys. And I'm no longer trying to judge it anymore. I'm no longer trying to hurry them along the journey anymore. I am simply saying the journey is what it is. And I am grateful that I've had a space amongst this. And I think that here's the piece, right, that I, I have, I hang on to because I, I, the shame and guilt piece, especially for mothers, because society views mothers but very differently than it views fathers. Yes. Um, and some not all, some, some of those views not bad and some of them not good. But as a mother, you know, we, I feel that our humanity is lost a lot. Yes. And in the shuffle, um, you know, we live in a society that expects us to be it all, do it all, um, and that our self-care is not important, which can actually, in the, in the context of family in the early years, can be disastrous for everybody. Um, and, and, and it really does, it really is the seed, one of the seeds that perpetuates cycles. Um, you fatigued, exhausted, overworked mothers are not breaking cycles of trauma they're surviving alone. Um, <laughs> right. So, it, right. So, you know, when you come, when, you know, your children are aging and you're seeing, you know, the cycle of trauma in your family and you are somebody who's committed to really working it through transparently, um, proactively, um, you know, I think the piece that you hit, that you really just hit on is I have to extract myself from the expectations mm. that this world places on me to always be on, to always be perfect, that I have to listen to me and my inner voice. And that when grief and acute pain that I need to process in relationship to my own childhood suffering that I'm recovering from or how it's been passed on to my children, that I do need to crawl into bed for two days and cry. I, I, it's okay. And that is so okay, because one of the things that we have to recognize that as mothers, for the most part, we are the heartbeat. We are the central focal spot. We are the nurturers. We are the managers. We are the leaders. You know, you know whatever the capacity is, it really does center around our space. And what I have recognized that is if I do not take the time to replenish then I absolutely am in no service and no good to those who absolutely are going to need me. So I now did not just uh, acknowledge it, I am demanding it. I am, I am making sure, my, my new motto going into 2020 is be selfish to be selfless. Because for me, if I don't make sure that I'm okay, nothing in my truth is going to. And it's interesting because I think it is a big piece of the transgenerational trauma, yeah. you know, that women have thrown themselves on the altar of, um, 
what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, uh, gosh, I'm losing the sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. Yeah, the altar, the altar of self-sacrifice. Exactly. Like, uh, and 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 that expectation is actually where so many women find their self-worth at the expense of themselves. And I don't even think that many women recognize it until shit's hitting the fan. And, There's and, a trauma trope actually um, called fawning. And yes. what fawning, when you fawn, you are so willing to give all that you are. You are a people pleaser. You're willing to just be selfless and self-sacrificing, but not and, and we, in, what's interesting, I believe, about this particular trauma trope is how much in society we have rewarded that space, especially in this idea of being a woman and in femininity, that we are just to give it all out there. But when you recognize that it's normally about when a woman is overly so, it's normally about her just trying to keep herself safe trying to minimize the amount of damage or perceived conflict or whatever trauma that she felt was going to be inflicted upon her uh, or on the particular person um, is. So you're just trying to minimize. So it's once again a coping mechanism. And I offer out to everybody out there just to examine when you are being in this selfless space. Are you being selfless to the point that it is causing you disconsummation, where you are starting to feel overwhelmed, exhausted, tired, just not coping in your scenario. Because then you gotta look at it, take a step back and take a look at what's really going on with you. There is nothing wrong of giving of yourself, but when it's to the, to the, the, at the expense of yourself, it doesn't serve. And, you know, I think that the, the, the word boundaries, of course, comes to mind because, and I think, you know, we talked about how women, you know, have been conditioned. And I think if you add in that layer, which is a layer of my piece, uh, you know, if you are a, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, in addition to being a woman, mm-hmm. um, your view of the world, as we talked about sexual abuse earlier, uh, is extremely skewed. Boundaries are skewed. You don't you, you know, you can be textbook intelligent all you want, but then how that shows up in everyday life, because our brain is responding to our body and it's sensations that we get in our body that tell our brain, no, this is not right. I don't want to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And, and I am finding even in my relationship with my two children living at home as a parent that I'm constantly now 47 years old in not intuitively setting boundaries. Sometimes I'm having to go back and go, oh shoot, I didn't really want to do that thing. <laughs> like, I didn't want to drive you to the mall today, actually. I really wanted to say no. I'm so tired. I haven't slept all week. So I will, and the thing is, is that my children have been conditioned yes. to, to know that I'm basically going to say that I, I'm mostly always going to come through with, for them. And so as they are growing older and becoming young men, it is, it is a lot of, it is work and we are building an awareness to teach them that women are not just a resource. (laughs) Absolutely. And what I love, I so celebrate you, Andrea, and, and that honesty and that self-awareness because it's from that space, from the recognition 
of this idea of our boundaries, that you have the opportunity to really recreate new ones for yourself, ones that will serve you and will also serve these fine young men that are coming up, flaws and all. And that's what this journey is, an acceptance of all that it is, flaws and all. Wow, Carrie. Goring, you are amazing. I am so grateful that you got to uh, log in and talk with me today. I would love to do this with you again because I feel that you are a wealth of knowledge. Um, and um, I just wanted to thank you. We're gonna close it out today. This is Andrea Page and Carrie Goring talking about a, a lot of intense life issues. Um, thank you for coming today. I adored the show. Thank you for being such an engaging and wonderful host. And anytime, Andrea, I'm on, just dial me up. We can do this. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Fatima, just Fatima.